Though large countries within our union are covered with the sugar maple as heavily as can be conceived, and that this tree yields a sugar equal to the best from the cane, yields it in great quantity, with no other labor than what the women and girls can bestow, who attend to the drawing off and boiling the liquor, and the trees, when skillfully tapped, will last a great number of years, yet the ease with which we had formerly got cane sugar had prevented our attending to this resource. Thomas Jefferson, 1790. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. So that right there was a quote by Thomas Jefferson that I found while doing a little research about maple syrup, especially in the Virginia area. And it turns out uh, finding this journal entry on the Colonial Williamsburg website that Thomas Jefferson was interested in maple sugar um, as a way to weaken slavery in the Caribbean, in the West Indies, where, um, where cane sugar was being exported to America. So quite fascinating. Today's guest is Tim Duff. He is a maple syrup producer, a sheep farmer, a cheese smoker, apple butter maker in Highland County, Virginia, which is part of Appalachia, at his Fairlawn Farm. Tim is one of the maple syrup producers who is involved with the Highland County Maple Festival, which happens every year in, in mid to late March in Highland County. It's a, uh, I think, the least populated county in Virginia. And every year, thousands and thousands and thousands of people come from all over to see how people have made maple syrup, both traditionally and in a modern way, in Appalachia. So pretty fascinating because, um, as you'll hear in the podcast, I had no idea that maple syrup was being made in my home state of Virginia, so south. When I think about the theme of this episode... What's come to mind is this, the, the word being a steward or stewardship. And I've heard that so much, especially with my friends who are into herbalism and into the preservation or conservation of Appalachian plants, being a steward of these forest farming plants, such as ginseng or ramps. You hear that term also with in the hunting world, to be a steward of the land and of these animals. So what I think this word applies even to today, to crafts, that if, if you're not the person who's going to do the, cra the craft in a traditional or historical way, then this will be lost. It will go extinct, the ways of doing these things. So that is what's so interesting about today's guest, Tim. 
And we're gonna hear about how to do many things the old way, whether that's maple syrup production or old guns. Um, lately, I've been having this feeling as I've been learning how to uh, start a garden here at our new place. Um, <clears throat> I'm very interested in using old tools, whether that's an old pitchfork, you know, that you get for a few dollars at a junk store or trying to get like a, a hand plow or something. Or um, looking at hand-cranked food mills for grinding cornmeal or grinding bone. Or even thinking about women's beauty products. Um, for instance, Vivian has been, Vivian, my girlfriend, has been using um, bear oil, bear grease in her hair. And this is, this goes back to Native American tradition, using bear oil for hair and for hair growth. It was later used, it was, it was later put into like a salve that one could buy like in the streets of Philadelphia. There's amazing pictures of bear hair oil um, in little tins. Or Vivian has been using coffee grounds to exfoliate her skin. Um, and I've just been thinking, perhaps humans have had things figured out, how to do things for a really long time. It seems that way. And like, where are we really going? I don't have any answer, but where are we really going with um, more and more technology to make things easier and easier? Is it necessary? Are, are we? Is the time that we're saving by doing things in a quicker way, um, is that good, bad? Um, I don't know. Just that's kind of what has come to mind while listening how to do things in the traditional ways. Now, definitely look into the Highland County Maple Festival for next year, which is mid-March of 2023. And Tim's farm is one of many that you can come and visit. But you can actually come and tour Tim's place um, throughout the year. You'll need to go to visitfairlawnfarm.com. I have the link below where you can um, write them about when you'd like to come by for a tour. Um, they also do seminar seminars on maple syrup from tree to table, on making apple butter, on smoking cheeses, on 18th century gunsmithing, and how to make your own powder horn. So if you're in the Virginia area and you find any of that interesting, reach out to them at visitfairlawnfarm.com. And definitely stay tuned to their website to get more information on the dates and um, logistics information about this very cool, very exciting, historically accurate crafts fair that he's got um, coming this fall, I believe. You'll hear about it all on the podcast, but stay tuned on their website for information if you're interested in coming out to it. I finally made the Patreon that I was threatening to make uh, for this podcast at patreon.com forward slash Our Numus Nature. I'll put a link also in the show notes. Now, this is for the goal of um, anyone who has been listening to this podcast from the beginning or, or maybe just heard a few of them and has found these stories meaningful and these conversations to be of some value, then, um, you know, thank you so much for listening. And thank you if you've found it inspiring enough to share and even further appreciation if you um, would like to help finance this project in any way, shape, or form. I've made three tiers, $1 a month, $5 a month, and $10 a month. Um, there are a few of these Patreon um, rewards for doing such, um, such as some percentages off of merch 
or a thank you shout out on the podcast. But really, the money is going to be going towards keeping this going because um, this does take a lot of time away from my illustration work, um, which is how I make my money. And uh, the podcast has really just been me financing it, obviously, whether that's um, from uh, gas money to buying sound effects to hosting it towards, you know, paying to camp out somewhere or even sometimes having to get an Airbnb if I go really far away. But I really only want to do these in person because it really seems not only for the person's story that they tell, it needs to be the quality of the recording needs to be um, in person. You can't hear the digital noise of a phone that would or Skype that would totally take away from the magic. But I also feel in person, my goal is for something of some kind of soulful content to come across. And um, I think that's really only achievable in person and often in the person's surroundings. Like today, we recorded in um, Tim's sugar house. And I feel like being inside of that environment is kind of what opens up some of the more potent moments in these podcasts. Now, before we get into the interview with Tim, I thought I would do a little bit of reading that kind of honors, um, you know, the first people of America, because that is where the maple syrup um, tradition comes from. The first of which is a article on research.colonialwilliamsburg.org titled Thomas Jefferson and the Maple Sugar Scheme by Mary Miley Theobald. I'm going to read just a paragraph of that. And then I'm going to read a um, legend, an Abenaki legend. And you'll obviously have to forgive me for not being able to pronounce the, the, the native words properly, but I'm going to read a legend about maple syrup. And that is from firstpeople.us. The Indians probably learned the secret from nature. Timothy D. Perkins, professor and director of the University of Vermont's Proctor Maple Research Center, writes... It is likely that the native peoples of North America observed squirrels and birds creating wounds in sugar maple trees in the early spring, figured out what they were doing, eating the sugar crystals that formed through evaporation of the water, and mimicked them to make maple sugar. They may have also discovered that broken branches of maple trees exuded sweet sap, sometimes forming sweet icicles. Those icicles sometimes are called sapsicles. The process fascinated Europeans. Dozens of accounts written by missionaries, Indian captives, and fur traders as early as the 1550s described the technique. A couple of tomahawk chops across the bark and a birch bark basket to catch the sap started the process. Indians boiled their meat in the sweet water. They poured the syrup over snow, and they mixed sugar with cornmeal, chestnuts, and berries to make what sounds like a granola bar. Sometimes they lived on sugar. For a month or more in late winter, it became their principal food. Some Indians used molds to make decorative shapes of sugar. Johann George Cole, a German who lived among the Ojibwe near Lake Superior, wrote that in 1859 that they pour it just before crystallization into wooden molds in which it becomes nearly hard as stone. They make it into all sorts of shapes, bears' paws, flowers, stars, small animals, and other figures, just like our gingerbread bakers at fairs. This sort is principally employed in making presents. A hundred years earlier, Peter Kalm had written, 
If sugar in a special form is desired, the thick syrup can be poured into shells or other vessels, depending on the shape desired and allowed to cool. Virginians did not discover the miracle of the sugar maple until the end of the 17th century. Robert Beverly's History and Present State of Virginia, published in 1705, says, Though this discovery has not been made by the English above 12 or 14 years, yet it has been known among the Indians longer than any now living can remember. Beverly compares maple sugar to coarse cane sugar in taste and appearance. It was bright and moist with a large full grain, the sweetness of it being like that of good muscovada, an unrefined brown sugar with a molasses flavor. Native Americans told Cole that maple sugar tastes more fragrant, more of the forest. Long ago, the Creator made and gave many gifts to man to help him during his life. The Creator made the lives of the Abenaki people very good, with plenty of food to gather, grow, and hunt. The maple tree at that time was one of these wonderful and special gifts from the Creator. The sap was as thick and sweet as honey. All you had to do was break the end of a branch and the syrup would flow out. In these days, Glascabe would go from native village to village to keep an eye on the people for the creator. One day, Glascabe came to an abandoned village. The village was in disrepair. The fields were overgrown and the fires had gone cold. He wondered what had happened to the people. He looked around and around until he heard a strange sound. As he went towards the sound, he could tell that it was the sound of many people moaning. The moaning did not sound like people in pain, but more like the sound of contentment. As he got closer, he saw a large stand of beautiful maple trees. As he got closer still, he saw that all the people were lying on their backs under the trees with the end of a branch broken off and dripping maple syrup into their mouths. The maple syrup had fattened them up so much and made them so lazy that they could barely move. Glascabe told them to get up and go back to their village to rekindle the fires and to repair the village, but the people did not listen. They told him that they were content to lie there and to enjoy the maple syrup. When Glascabe reported this to the Creator, it was decided that it was again time that man needed another lesson to understand the Creator's ways. The Creator instructed Glascabe, to fill the maple trees with water. So Glascabe made a large bucket from birch bark and went to the river to get water. He added water and added more water until the sap was like water. Some say he added a measure of water for each day between moons, or nearly 30 times what it was as thick syrup. After a while, the people began to get up because the sap was no longer so thick and sweet. They asked Glascabe, where has our sweet drink gone? He told them that this is the way it will be from now on. Glascabe told them that if they wanted the syrup again, that they would have to work hard to get it. The sap would flow sweet only once a year before the new year of spring. The people were shown that making syrup would take much work. Birch bark buckets would need to be made to collect the sap. Wood would be needed to be gathered to make fires to heat rocks and the rocks would be needed to put into the sap to boil the water out to make the thick sweet syrup that they once were so fond of. He also told them that they could get the sap for only a short time each year so that they would remember the error of their ways. And so it is still to this day, 
Each spring, the Abenaki people remember Glaskabe's lesson in honoring creator's gifts and work hard to gather the maple syrup they love so much. Uh, we're located at about 3,200 feet up on the top of the, uh, the mountain range here in Highland County. If you're not familiar with Highland County, what I like to tell folks is start in like Newport News, head due west. You'll bump into Richmond. From Richmond, head west. You'll bump right into Stanton, Virginia. From Stanton, head west, another hour and a half. Uh, so we're about five and a half, six hours from Tidewater, but we're on top of the mountain range. Uh, the entire county is roughly 28 to 4,100 feet above sea level. If you've never been to the county, if all you've seen is Tidewater or the Piedmont area or Northern Virginia, you need to come out here. It is unlike the rest of the state. 100%. I grew up in Northern Virginia, which is crowded suburbs. And this, this is why I'm here today. Because the idea that, you know, so I grew up going up to Vermont to see my mom's friends and go skiing. We did a few trips. We went up to Montreal area. You know, maple syrup makes complete sense up there. The idea that maple syrup was being made here in Virginia and technically south of where I was in Northern Virginia, but high up here in the mountains. Now, do the local, do you and the locals here, how do you guys reference this area? Do you consider this Appalachia? Because I think it is Appalachia. It most definitely is. Uh, this county is a relatively new county, 18, 1848. The land was settled uh, by the Germans and the Scots-Irish. Uh, we have families here in the county that can document their families back to the 1750s. Incredible. And they haven't left. They're still here. Incredible. Incredible. So do you guys say that you just call this the Highlands or Alleghenies or? Well, the Highlands is anything from, you know, Craig County all the way up through us. We refer to ourselves, we are Highland County. Yep. We don't, we almost don't want to associate with any particular name that okay. Richmond associates with us. We are Highland County. And it's right on the border of West Virginia. And where we just moved, we are uh, in Pocahontas County, which we're basically neighbors. Even though it takes about 45 minutes to get from one another, we're, when you're this deep in the mountains, you, we're neighbors. That's it. All you have to do is go 13 miles again west. Uh, you'll crest over Allegheny Mountain, and you are right smack dab in your home county. Now, I wanted to kind of open with this because I thought this was kind of a fun way to kind of um, a little vignette of this area. So when we were moving, we were looking where are we going to live next? And I, I wanted to, I felt very called to be in Appalachia because I told you we had lived in the Blue Ridge Mountains. So it's not Appalachia. So I like wanted to be a little deeper in the mountains. So we came out and looked at a little property just down the road here. And... Um, the realtor, um, about a guy about our age, and I, we've seen him at the Sugar Festival, and I think he might be Mennonite. I'm not quite sure. 
you met Dave. Oh, okay. He's a young guy. Yes. But he said something that <laughs> I, I thought really illustrates this area. So it was really nice talking to him. He's a very religious guy. And he told us um, as we were leaving, he said, people who come here and want to change things don't last very long. But when I say that, that sounds like there's a bit of a, it's a little, um, a little aggressive or something, but that wasn't the feeling. The feeling was like love. Like we love this place so much. Like there's nothing to change. This is beautiful the way this is. That's how it felt when he said it. He said it was like very endearing the way he said it. I know it. him extremely well. And that's a, the way you took it is the way he intended it. Super family, the Heatwall family, super family. The folks in the county aren't adverse to change, provided they see a need for that change. But coming in here and it's almost as a joke, complaining that you have to go all the way, you know, an hour and 20 minutes to go to Walmart. And the common response is, well, you should have thought of that before you moved here. Whatever it is you need for okay. your family. Hey, oh. Exactly on that note, when we looked at this little place, it wasn't right. It was like someone's camp, like a hunting camp. It wasn't really like a place to live, live. But I was like, man, this is a little too far. Like groceries are going to be like one hour to get to Harrisonburg, Virginia, if we want like organic and all the options. It's going to be a little far. I was like, I don't know. It's a little far. And then we moved further. <laughs> and so we're even further. And going grocery takes an hour and 15 minutes to get there. And so I love it. And it's just you're driving through beautiful rural areas. It's a beautiful way to go get your groceries. Yep. The worst you'll encounter, uh, you'll have a minor traffic jam because there'll be a logging truck in front mm -hmm. of you and the man driving it, he knows you're back there. He will pull over as soon as he can. Mm -hmm. You may waste eight, nine minutes on your trip, but you're behind a logging truck. You're slowing down a little bit. You may see some more deer or turkey or bear. You mm -hmm. may have, you may pass a neighbor going the other way. You get to wave to them. Mm -hmm. Just slow down a little bit. Everything will be fine. I love it. So the reason I'm here today is because um, the second we moved within like one week was this Maple Festival. So I saw that and I was like, we got to go check that out. We came, we came to two of, I think you said is like eight or so or nine people that do mm -hmm. the sugaring. Um, and you're one of them. And the reason I'm here with you is because I was looking through your guys's Facebook and whatnot and seeing how you just like doing it the old time way. And I'm a sucker for all that old history. And it's just so much more beautiful. So let's talk a little bit about sugaring. First of all, what do you call yourself? Like if you're a guy who does maple sugar, what do you like? What's the word? Is there a term? There is. Uh, we're, we're a producer. Uh, we are we are sitting in a recreated 1880s sugar house. We are commercial, even though it looks like a museum. Nothing in here is just for display. We use all right. the equipment. So we are technically, we are all called producers. Uh, but, but is there like hunter, trapper, farmer? Is there a term? Sugar producer. A sugar producer. And that would have been the term you would have said in the 1800s? Well, back then, it, it wasn't so much a term. It was 
it was something you did this time. Okay. Not this it's just time part of, of living in this area. That's it. Uh, you would call yourself a farmer if you had cattle, sheep. Mm. You would call yourself a sawyer if you had a sawmill. Mm. But as far as maple production, it only runs generally January through early March, give or take a week or two. It was something you did that time of year mm. to make syrup or cook it down further into granular sugar mm. for trading purposes. It was just something you did that time of year. Then you went back to farming, mm. sawing, whatever, uh, tanning, whatever your main occupation was. Up north, again, Vermont, New York State, all those folks, don't know how they did it back then. Mm. Up there, it is a major, obviously, it's a major mm -hmm. production up there. Mm -hmm. But down here, it was something you did in the latter part of the winter. One, you know, to keep busy, to make a product that you could use for the family and a product you could trade mm. to either folks driving through the county or when it came time to go down to the general store, you had sugar cakes or you had granular sugar you could trade because that man didn't make syrup. Mm. He was too busy running his or her store. And you can get something, trade it. So it must have been the only access to sugar for a long period. Well, yes and no. Uh, we had a gentleman here in the county who has since passed away. He was here during the Depression. And I asked him, and also during World War II with the rationing and all, I asked him how local folks fared during those times. He looked at me and he kind of chuckled and he said, well, we had those stamp things that the government would issue, but he said, sugar, which was a premium back then, everybody made their right. own sugar, so we didn't need to do, and as far as beef or pork, or chicken, we're farmers. We are. We had all those products. Mm. So that's sufficient. Self-sustaining. Yes, yes. Even though a major, you know, catastrophe like you know, World War II or mm. the Depression, was it felt here? Absolutely. People left. Mm. Uh, but as far as food products, as far as lifestyle, life continued. Mm. Man, that is cool. That's so beautiful to be able to provide the the staples for oneself and i think that's what a lot of people like myself who've lived in the suburbs lived in the city that's what we're enamored by and trying to learn and trying to dabble in you know um okay talk a bit about the sugar process for someone okay so i came to the festival i bought for one dollar each I bought three cast iron spile. Is that how you say it? Spiles. I yep. bought three cast iron spiles. The new place we live has a few maple trees. So I tapped one of them. I got a, the large mason jar, like the one that's, I don't know how to describe <laughs> it. Okay. I got one of those filled up. That entire giant mason jar was cooked down to not even enough maple syrup for one pancake meal for me and Vivian. Okay, so I left that little fun day experience being like all these people, all these farmers in general, but we'll just pick maple syrup to be what we're focused on, should be being, I mean, one, it should be a thousand, a hundred, two hundred dollars for one jug 
of maple syrup. The amount of effort that goes into our food, our food system is unbelievable. And to be, you know, I've been hunting now for five years, so that's one way to appreciate what meat is. But to appreciate what sugar is, incredible. And and then you're going to tell us about how you do it, which is the old time way, which takes even more time and effort. So let's hear a little bit. What's the process? So you've got this sugar bush. Well, uh, what we do here in the county, and they do elsewhere also, you either own your own sugar bush is what we call it or which grove. i was asking it's a grove a okay. grove some people will call it a maple orchard mm. it's all the same thing it's a group of trees located in a given area i'm sure now um they um you kind of inherit a grove or a bush right like when you move to a property were uh, originally were those kind of like planted and kind of maintained no uh due to our elevation Due to cold winters, due to fantastic water here in Highland County, natural water, these trees grow all by themselves. It would have been a natural orchard that you just kind of... Um, if you look up there mm -hmm. on, on Back Creek Mountain, look behind the barn here on Lance Mountain, 65 70% of what you're seeing up there are sugars. Wow. Uh, yeah, some folks call them maple, maple sugar trees, or they call them rock maple or hard maple. We refer to them as sugars. Okay. So I'm looking at literally in this county, there are millions of sugars. <sighs> There's no need to plant one. But if you were to plant one, uh, which some folks, they have uh, for decorative purposes in mm. the yard and all, which is great. You can plant on about 40 years before that tree gets to be 10 to 12 inches in diameter, which some of these books that you buy on how to make your own sugar or maple syrup, they'll tell you that a 10 to 12 inch tree can handle one tap. We give a lot of classes here, a lot of seminars. We tell people, please do not tap what we call a, a sapling. You know, a tree 10 inches across, 12 inches across, that's a sapling. Start at 18 inches, maybe 20 inches. Get yourself a nice tree. So why are you saying that? Because you can hurt the tree? Well, or it's not going to produce enough? Or what's going on there? Neither uh, neither or both. Uh, can you hurt a tree by tapping it? Sure. If you tap it incorrectly, you can hurt the tree. There are so many trees in this county that if you're that desperate to hang, in my case, we hang buckets. So you know, cool. If you're that desperate to hang another bucket, walk 20 feet in any direction, you will walk smack dab into another <laughs> sugar, and it's probably going to be bigger than the one that you were going to tap. So we like to see 18-inch trees and bigger. We hang buckets. So, uh, so why? Why do we hang buckets? No, no, no. Oh, why the bigger tree? Is it going to produce better or what? What's well, the deal? Uh, it has already reached its maturity. You know, why, uh, why would you breed a cow when mm -hmm. she's only, you know, eight, nine months old, 10 months old, wait for her to reach maturity mm -hmm. and then you'll get longevity out of that, that cow. Same thing with a tree. Why mess with a, a little baby one that's only mm -hmm. 40, 50, 60 years old? Go for those hundred year old trees. Now, I know I'm skipping around here a little bit, but it'll all come together here eventually. A, an 18-inch tree, in theory, 
I guess you could put two taps in an 18-inch tree. We teach one tap. Mm. You get a nice 24 to 30-inch sugar tree. Okay, two. That's it. We don't do what some of the commercial guys will do. They'll take a nice a nice 40-inch sugar tree. That's 40 inches across. That's a big tree. You may find you know, three, four, five taps with tubing. Mm. Uh, two. Mm. You want to hang another bucket? Walk 20 feet. They're all over the place. Mm. We don't want to show folks how to overtap. It looks bad. Uh, we don't want them going back home to wherever home might be. They incorrectly tap one of their yard trees and they say, well, that fellow from Highland County, he's the one that taught us. I would much rather them under tap a tree and say, well, that fellow from Highland County, he was very mm -hmm. conservative. Uh, he doesn't want us to overdo it. So we'll just So find. can you kill it if you overdo it? Or no, does it no, no. Uh, but every year, now unfortunately we don't have uh, video for this production, but right behind you is a stump from a sugar tree. Mm. And every year that you tap, you drill your hole, you're just going under the bark a little bit, it's not a very deep hole. You're drilling at a slight upward angle. You, you hang your, insert your spile, hang your bucket, put your lid on it. End of the season, bucket comes off, the spile comes out. And the hole that was roughly we'll say half the size of your pinky, basically, in diameter. Well, the next year, that hole slowly begins to heal. Mm. Every year you tap, you want to go left or right of the previous hole, two, three, four inches, and up or down two or three. So you're doing like a serpentine, squiggly line around mm. the tree. If you put too many taps in like a 20-inch tree, small tree, you put too many taps this year. Well, now next year you have to go three or four inches offset from each one of them, mm. up and down from each one of them. One, it gets confusing. And two, after three or four years with a small 20-inch tree, you've already used the whole diameter of that body of the tree. I see. So put in one for a 20-inch tree. By the time you get around to the other side and all the way back again, it's been 15, 20 years. Start all over again. Now, here's a quick question. So I don't know if we have trees that are that diameter. I'll have to go back and look. But um, so for someone with, you know, for an old, so a family, say, in the 1800s, how many trees would you need to produce enough um, syrup or rendered into sugar for a homestead? That's a, that's a question we don't normally get. That's, you're thinking deeper than a lot of the guests we have coming in. Uh, there's, a, there's a graph that we use, and our farm falls within that graph almost to the gallon every year. It's, it's amazing. It's a very accurate guesstimation. Mm. For every tap, for our case, for every bucket that you hang, you're going to get, at the end of the season, finished product, one quart of syrup per tap. So 100 taps or 100 buckets? Wait, not per filled bucket. 
It's oh no, per tap, finished. a tap. So in your advice, let's just go ahead and say you're tapping one spile in one tree. That's one quart. Yes. For so, a season. So what it boils down, literally what it boils down to, 100 taps will yield 25 gallons of finished syrup. A thousand taps, which sounds like a lot to the average person, uh, that's much bigger than we are. We're a very small family farm, but uh, a thousand taps, 250 gallons of syrup. So what did the families back then do? I would say, and you mentioned cast iron earlier, we do something radically different here uh, as far as the taps. I would say the average family probably had 200 to 400 taps. So divide that by four. So it was enough for the family. It was enough so to market. So you need a few hundred trees for a family, for a to make it a four or five, six person family yes. for your sugar for a full year. Yep. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. Now you had mentioned you bought some cast iron spiles, which is great. If you had come here, I would have just given, I've got hundreds of <laughs> antique up to the very modern 1950s mm. spiles. Uh, we're, we are the only camp in the county that still uses wooden spiles. <laughs> now, not all of ours are wooden. Uh, we do have some modern stainless steel ones too but we'll sit here at night and once we have the the pan cooking we feed the fire every 20 to 25 minutes mm. and when the big tank located behind me here when that tank is full of sugar water which comes from the tree we don't stop cooking until the tank is empty it takes about 30 to 32 hours to empty that tank so for 30 to 32 hours, you're staying awake. Are you serious? Oh, I'm, I'm dead serious. Uh, you don't eat well and you don't sleep well during maple season. Wow. But we all look forward to it. We all think it's fun until the last week or so. It begins to get a little old. But while we're sitting here trying to stay awake to feed the fire for the next firing, uh, we have an elderberry bush on the property. So we'll cut elderberry sticks cut them into four-inch pieces. We'll whittle them out. We'll make elderberry spiles while we're sitting here. So and, cool. And uh, my trees will have a combination of brand-new stainless steel spiles all the way back to the 1887 uh, patent date of the cast iron spiles to the wooden spiles. Okay, so this is so neat because a lot of these listeners, a lot of my friends and a lot of um, the people who have hired me are herbalists and in more of the plant world. So, you know, elderberry is a very important medicinal plant. It's got a lot of folklore around it. So I think people will be, that's super interesting, I think, to the people listening that you can use elderberry for a, uh, for a spile. And I'd also read sumac. All right, there we go. It comes up every time. I intentionally don't, I don't focus a whole lot on the sumac. Okay. Uh, a lot of the folks that we have coming in here for seminars, they may not be quite as, uh, I don't want to say educated, but they, they may inadvertently pick the wrong sumac oh, yeah, bush. Sure. Uh, so what I do have here, and I'll show you here shortly, I have some antique spiles that came from this county. I have the antique bucket that they were held in they are in fact sumac 
they are the correct sumac. Yes. Both sumac and elderberry, the pith, the center of the stalk, is very soft. You can take a... So it's already a tube, basically, and you just push out the soft. Take a little nail, push out the soft. So neat. You've got a straw, a little bit of whittling. You can make a spile in about 15 to 20 seconds. So cool, Uh, man. So cool. So, um, yeah, we we do, um, again, sumac is also really um, revered by the herbalists and foragers. So we've done like sumac tea, which is so delicious mm-hmm. so much like well it's a more of it it's called sumac aid because it's like lemonade yep. um so what you're talking about with these old, super old time spiles now so from my basic knowledge um the maple tapping was learned from the native americans i saw on your um facebook that you guys had kind of posted there's a, not only is there the native american history there's also like a legend behind maple syrup i don't know if you know that off the top of your mind but um there, there's a variety of stories, uh, as with any anything we do. Uh, there's stories, some are based on fact, some are based solely on fiction, but it makes a great story. Uh, allegedly, uh, there was a an Indian or a tribe that befriended the white folks that came over from England. And what they did back then, and it makes perfect sense, I've done it, I've done it out in the woods and it does work, uh, you take a belt axe, or people call it a tomahawk, it's a belt axe, and you make two slashes in the tree, uh, an upside down, not quite a triangle, but you know the point is going down. You then take a piece of birch bark or any stick, and you put it inside where the two lines converge, put it in there, and the water will naturally drip down the scar that you made, the two angled lines, It'll run out the twig, and it'll fall into a catchment of some type, a bucket or whatever they might have had. So that's what the natives knew that at a certain time of the year, water comes up from the ground. Uh, whether they thought it was magic, whether I don't know what they thought, but they knew it worked. What did they do with it? Did there they cook go. it down, or did they? Because so if you just do it that way, so. The liquid that comes out of the tree is just called sugar water, maple water. Well, no, it's called called sugar water. Sugar water. If you're from roughly halfway up Pennsylvania or further north, up there, the folks call it sap. Okay. I've had people say that. And I was like, I don't think that's what sap is because it really is just water with the faintest taste of maple. But historically, uh, you know, the Canadians... If, you, if this were Canada or if this were New York State, and I think Vermont does it too, if we were doing this podcast up north, you would be sitting in a sap house. Hmm. Uh, we call it a sugar house. Got it. Uh, or a sugar camp if it's a little bit bigger than this. <laughs> so was it documented how the Native Americans consumed the, the sugar water? What they did, and again, I've done it here, and it... it does work to a very poor degree, but it does work. If you take your sugar water that you've collected, you put it into a container, they would have used a wooden trough or something just to hold the water. You then take a rock out of the fire. You dump the rock into this container filled with water. You will get one heck of a lot of steam. Be careful what kind of rock, because the rock could snap and crack on you. 
but when all is said and done, you then pick up the rock after it's cooled. You can then scrape off bits of sugar. No. Yes, and it does work. Now, you're also, make sure the rock is clean before you do it because otherwise you're eating moss and burn moss. And you're, uh, but if the rock is clean, you will end up with sugar. You drop the the rock. Pick up a two clean sticks. Rock, you drop it into the into the, the wait. You heat up a rock in the fire. You in get the fire. it a real hot. Then you drop it into your sugar water. Yep. Sizzles, foams, uh, steam. You pull out the rock after it's cool. After yep. it's cool, and there and it has caked on it. Sugar It'll crystals. have residue of sugar. You scrape it all off and incredible. Yep. And you tried that. That is so cool. Now, once the, once the English came over, then we had everything from iron cauldrons. We had copper we, and trading with the Indians, uh, the Native Americans. Uh, then they began to do... Yeah, so I've been reading. I just showed you this book, The First Frontier, which is absolutely incredible. Like I was telling you, it's written by a naturalist up in Pennsylvania that hopefully I'll get on the podcast. But where I am in the book, it is talking about how <clears throat> the way to boil for a lot of these tribes was basically what you were saying. You are heating up rocks and you're putting those rocks into your liquid in a very slow process. So when the Europeans brought kettles and whatnot, this was like, like for the women who would have to cook, to have a kettle would be like, it's an unbelievable piece of technology at that time period. So Mm -hmm. it was highly revered by, you know, the tribes that were here that, wow, these new tools. Um, Let's talk about, so you're doing it so you have showed me around your sugar house, your where you do, um, <clears throat> where you make your muzzle loaders. We'll talk about that later. But you love history, so you've been doing your sugaring in this old time way. So whereas through reading a little bit, looking at videos, visiting some of the sugar houses here, there's like a new, very modern way with evaporators, all that. I'm not very interested in that. You're doing it in this old time way. Let's hear a little bit about what is the old time way. So you said the Europeans brought over cast iron. So what what was the what how were people doing this in the 17 1800s? And it, how are you doing it? Early on what they would do, they would take three or four iron kettles, hang them on a wooden pole. And these are like cauldrons. They're enormous. Well, I mean they're big for for a, someone for a house, they're big. Yes, but for us, uh, we've got well, let me one, two, three, four, five. Can you pick six. one up? I mean, yes. are they like a hundred pounds? No, no, no. They're probably okay. anywhere from forty-five to okay. sixty-five pounds. Okay. But we've got six or seven kettles here on the farm. But you would you would suspend three or four or more kettles in a line. You would then fill them with sugar water, start the fire, then Generally, and this it would vary farm to farm, but generally the kettle that is on your farthest to the right as you look at them, that's your finishing kettle. So what you would do, the fire is going, water is boiling. When the one on the right started going down, you would dip from a previous one into that one. The previous ones, numbers one, two, and three, we'll say, they're condensing the sugars down, steaming off water. It's sweeter, so you dip out of that one and put into the last one. The last one is what you would pull off your finished product. So it was a progression. What we do here, we have behind me here a 1930 
English tin pan. It's two feet by six feet. After we have collected all of our water from the buckets, we bring everything back here by way of the tractor with a big holding tank. We park the tractor behind the sugar house. Traditionally, there's always a hill behind your sugar house. That's why we have it where we have it. Uh, traditionally, there would also be an old wagon road up there. So when I had this built, I talked to a friend of mine who had a bulldozer. I said, give me a make-believe road. Just dead-end it. Just have it disappear. Didn't know what I was... He's kind of shocked. He did it. And if you go up there now, you'll see what looks like an old wagon road. You park the tractor up there, and the tractor with the tank is taller or higher than my holding tank here on the building. So we use gravity to feed from the tank to my holding tank. Modern guys will use either uh, gasoline-powered pumps, electric pumps. We use gravity because mm. it always works. Mm. It takes longer, but nothing we do here is really time-sensitive. Uh, we know how long it takes. Uh, so it takes me 20, 25 minutes to empty one tank. There's things I can be doing during those 25 minutes. And you minutes. were just saying before we started recording that um, so the Maple Festival I came to is like a huge economic um, staple of the year for a lot of people here. You were saying that the power went out recently for one of them and you guys didn't even notice because you're running old time style. We have plenty of kerosene lanterns. <laughs> uh, we have wood fired. We don't use propane here. We don't use number two heating oil, which is diesel. Uh, we use wood. If you can make a fire, you can make syrup. Mm. That's how we, we like to look at it. So once the tank behind me is filled, we then open up the valve, fill the pan with about two and a half inches of sugar water. It goes in the pan, or actually comes from the tree, at about 2% sugar, 98% pure water. We then light the fire open the valve at the far end. There's like a milk line from a dairy. We have the water bleeding in constantly. We then take the trap doors that are up top. We'll crack open the, the trap doors to let the steam out because you can't evaporate moisture into a moist environment. So you oh. have to get that steam to go up. And then we'll get a hard rolling boil going in about 35 to 40 minutes. You keep that boil going for about 30 hours. Uh, when the tank is empty, 325 gallons, takes about 32 hours. We try to schedule it so that it's emptied at midnight on the second day you're cooking. Now, you haven't slept yet. I mean, are you really not even, you're just in this room for 32 hours? Wow. And just like take a nap on this bench? be careful because if you fall asleep you're going to ruin your syrup. yes so what will happen you'll burn it you can burn mm -hmm. water which sounds a little bit odd but it, it's water but it has sugar even though it's mm -hmm. only two percent the longer you cook it the more steam you're putting up mm -hmm. it goes from two percent four percent six percent you're getting it up there pretty quickly you can burn it mm -hmm. so taking a nap is not a good idea wow so when it's emptied, when the big tank is emptied, it's midnight on the second day. You go in the house, uh, take a nap, about three hours. You get up again at three. Get a cup of coffee, 
come back out here, the pan that has just evaporated so much of that water, mm -hmm. your 325 is now about 20 to 22 gallons. That's all that's left in the pan. Mm. Again, the tank is empty. We drain off the 20 to 22 gallons. The To the average person, it'll look like syrup. It'll smell like syrup. It'll taste like watered-down syrup because mm. that's exactly what it is. Mm. We then shift it over there to that kettle. That is an 1885 Lander's uh, sugar kettle. It is not a lard rendering kettle. It is not a butchering kettle. It's not a soup kettle. It's only seen one product since 1885, and that's sugar. It's so incredible. It's so beautiful. If we light that fire by you know, about 4.30, by 1 to 1.30 that afternoon, we will have made about four and a half gallons of syrup. Now, yes, that's an awful lot of effort for very little return. Okay, a gallon is a milk jug, right? Yes. Wow. So we're talking like 40 hours just in the cooking. Now, 300 gallons of sugar water that's come out of trees. It's going to vary. And how many days to get that water? You could have them filled you know, in a 24-hour period. It generally takes and the you know, water a little will, longer. The water is time-sensitive, right? It'll rot if you don't cook it. Well, it won't rot. It'll spoil. It'll spoil. Which okay. you can, it, it turns like yellow, right? It'll The sugars will break down, become starchy. And you'll know it. If so you've lost your water, you'll know it when you look at it. Dump it. So this is so time sensitive. It's so interesting. A lot of these old time things, it makes me think of like um, reading about the whalers. That it's a time crunch. That there's enormous amount of time where nothing is happening. And then all of a sudden you're up for three days processing a whale. <laughs> or doing this. Like it's, it has to happen right now. Yep, we'll spend days and days and days getting the firewood because we go through a lot of firewood. I believe it. We'll get all the firewood ready. We'll get our jars ready in the house. We'll get the place fully sanitized. We power wash the whole building. Mm. Everything is ready to go. And then the weather doesn't cooperate. Mm. The trees will not, they cannot run. That's right. With certain conditions. Uh a good run is going to require below freezing at night and well above freezing during the day. So you have this cyclic temperature range. What we like to see is 12 to 18 degrees at night and 40 to 45 during the day. Oh, that's perfect with one catch. Trees don't run in the wind. Mm. The trees will tense up. Mm. So you could have the perfect fluctuation of temperature. You've got your firewood. You've got everything. It's perfect. And we get the typical 25 to 35 knot winds we get here in Highland County. Trees don't run. You could go a week with no run. Mm. Then suddenly the wind stops. The temperature does as perfect fluctuation the trees don't stop running for three days i mean massive run for three days you've got too much water you can't process that much water 
So then you'll find the big camps, which everybody in the county is bigger than me. The big camps will call me and say, Tim, how are your trees? I said, I'm doing fine. The wind picked up about noon, so it's slowing down. And they'll say, well, Tim, come on over with the truck, bring a tank. I've got too much water. I've gotten water from pretty much every producer in this county, mm. and it always comes in at the exact time that I needed it. Mm. And there is no charge. Uh, there is no money changing hands. Mm. Uh, if a producer, one of the bigger guys, if one of their pieces of equipment breaks, they call another producer, mm. and if they have the same evaporator or they have their same reverse osmosis filter mm. system, they'll loan filters. Now, nothing I have here could be loaned out to anybody because it's 120 years out of date. But if I had something, I would gladly give it up. So as far as competition in the county mm. amongst the producers, no, it really doesn't exist. Uh, we're all here to make a product that we can market during the Maple Festival. And the Maple Festival is a driving force mm. for this county. So we all know you do your best to make the county look good because we need the tourist dollars. Okay, I got, I got three things I want to say. Sure. Okay, first, I'm going to repeat. After you just went through that process, the fact that you can buy a jar of maple syrup for $20, $18, and that seems expensive, they should be hundreds of dollars. So I'm just repeating that. The amount of effort that goes into food is astonishing. Secondly, I wanted to say, and this is a little bit weird, but I couldn't help. I know you do it old school style with the, with the spile and the buckets, but the more modern version, they have tubing and the tubing goes into big plastic holding tanks. Um, it's kind of a little, to me, it's like a little strange looking. It's a little um, almost medical looking, but um, like a surgical. But um, I could not help but feel like, and we, we don't need to get too into this, but you know, through hunting and whatnot, um, you just learn to be connected to your food. And I couldn't help but looking at it and being like, I don't know how, if I were vegan, how would you not, how would you look at maple syrup and think that, that that's okay? Because like you're saying, trees are obviously living creatures, even though they're so sensitive, even the wind will stop their inner function. It's like, how could you be vegan and be okay with eating plant life? Because plants are alive. They're just as alive as everything Good else. Point. Good and point. you're drinking tree blood, basically. Thank you, trees. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's incredible. Um, okay. Now, now you, you just mentioned one thing. Because we give a lot of seminars here, a lot of classes, there are people and a heck of a lot from your state. Oh, my gosh. I would say most Wait, of the Wait, what's my state? West Virginia. Okay, well, I've just only been there a month. Well, I'm, you, I'm a Virginian. I was born in Virginia, you know. Well, your, your current residency yes. is West Virginia. You folks over there are jumping on the bandwagon. There's a ton of syrup producers over your way. So cool. They come here to learn. Uh, not all. Um, many of them have come here to learn how to do it small scale. Mm. And they have since grown. Mm. So they started off like us. Now they have evaporators mm. in some cases. But I forgot where I was going with this. And there was a good point, too. I was Dog just talking it. about um, the, <laughs> the contemplation of plants having a life, you know, just like an animal that our food system, that eating a plant, eating an animal, it's all kind of, 
Mm-hmm. It's all one amazing wheel. Of- I've totally lost where I was. It was a good point. It'll come back to me. Okay. Well, when it, it was, comes back it was a good one. Trust me, folks. But the third uh, thing I wanted to bring up is, and you're going to talk about it a little bit later with all the, the, the old guns that you make and whatnot or fix up. What is your feeling? Can you articulate why you love doing it the old way? I mean, first of all, the beauty. There's a visual beauty to seeing the fire and just this big steam pouring out this wood building here, the black cast iron. There's just like beautiful, just aesthetically, it's like soulful. Can you articulate why you love all the old stuff? The short answer is no, I can't. (laughs) Uh, Growing up, we grew up on a small family farm. Uh, I've always had an interest in history. Were you here in Highland? Nope. I was born and raised up in uh, lower Adirondacks, northern Catskill Mountains. Wow, okay. Uh, Joined the service and traveled up and down the coast for the service. And I wanted to get back to the mountains. So when I retired the first time from the military... uh, we got on 64, Route 64 in Virginia, headed west, and basically we got lost and we found Highland County. We had no clue what state we thought we were actually in, West Virginia. We weren't sure. Uh, visited a few more times and ended up here. So I've got an interest in, in colonial and pre-colonial Virginia history. That's just a, a passion of mine. I have worked on the big evaporators. I can run an evaporator. It's not fun. <laughs> to me, it's work. It's it's very exacting. You've got to know exactly when to do this. And if you throw that valve at the wrong time, you could, you know, burn up your eighty thousand dollar evaporator. It it's it's too modern. I prefer, I'm looking at it right now, I prefer my 140-year-old iron kettle. I know the kettle stove that it sits in. I know what type of wood it likes, which sounds crazy, but you can put the wrong wood in there and you're just wasting your time. You put the correct wood of the correct size, you'll get a boil going rapidly. Uh, The pan behind me here that came from uh, the great grandma of the man that helped me build this sugar house. That was her pan from 1930. So there's a local history there. I, if there's a, we tell folks, yes, what we do is antiquated. And if anybody knows of a more antiquated, more ridiculously slow way of making syrup, let us know. We'll try it. We don't do it for the money, although it would certainly be nice to turn a profit once in a while. But we do it because it's fun. We do it because if somebody doesn't continue using an English tin pan and an iron kettle to make their syrup, within a generation or two, you'll be reading about it in a book and wondering how they really did it. Well, here, when we have folks in the sugar house, and next year, we hope to see you here. We have everybody from four and five-year-olds up to 90-some-odd-year-olds. If they've been here more than once, they know when they walk in, 
if I'm busy over there at the kettle giving a tour, they'll look at the pan. If it's not boiling right because I got too busy talking on the other end of the building, they'll open up the door. They'll feed the fire for me. The kids skim the foam for me. Uh, nothing in here is you know out of reach. N- nothing here shouldn't be touched. We want. I see what you're saying. There's it's it's a lower level of technical entry, so that it's more family folky age timeless. That's it. Okay, two things have popped in my head. One, the past has always been romantic, especially for artists and people of that so like even reading about lord byron the poet of i think he was late 1700s even he would dress in 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 older clothes from like a hundred years before him and was interested in the antiquities whatnot do you think so i am very much of the same temperament as you i like old things obviously i'm using this nice computer it's nice to exist in a world where some things can be very easy do you think what we think is old and fun was fun in that time period? No, I can speak for a lot of folks in the county that are now in their 70s and 80s. Their job was to haul the water to the horse-drawn wagon or the oxen-drawn wagon for their father to take it back to the sugar house, just like we're doing now. And they were trudging through snow slipping on rocks, but it did get them out of school. That was a positive thing because you you had a family farm. Uh, You you had to work the farm. So it got them out of school, but it was hard Hmm. labor. Hmm. Uh, When the folks that are born and raised here come in here and they see the, the way we're doing it, We'll hear comments. Well, gee, I had to do that when I was, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Mm. Uh, and then look at the scar on my arm. I got that when I fell and hit the fence post. You get all these stories. But was it a rough life? It was, but that's the life they had. They didn't mm. know what they know now. Mm. So back then, yeah, it was hard work. It may not have been fun, but it was what you did, you know. So it's hard to take today's standard and apply it. Of course, to then doesn't work. Uh, you know, were they were were folks poor back then? Well, if you told them they were poor, yeah, they knew they were poor. That this is their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. That they didn't know. I don't want to say they didn't know any better, but this is normal. Exactly, it's normal. So that this also opens up a conversation that we started having in your um, your gunsmithing cabin, which is like living history. So I, what we're starting to talk about, and I said, let's wait, which I think is so interesting. You know, um, you see a lot of people who are interested in in like Renaissance fairs and reenactment and kind of in the background of my head, I've been thinking, yeah, that's interesting. It's very the history. The history is interesting, but if you're interested in living history, like how much more interesting to actually do stuff like what you're doing, like not just dress in the thing and go to a fair, but do stuff of that time period. Like you, I read, will hunt with 1700s muzzle-loading rifles. Incredible. Mm-hmm. 
So just there, living history. There's nothing wrong with you know folks that want to reenact. Of course, of course. Uh, obviously, with the, the uh, Civil War reenactors are very uh, prominent in this area, which is great. They are well schooled. That they read a lot, they study a lot, and they'll do you know reenactments or they'll do uh, you know living history weekends somewhere, which is great. We were talking earlier about a lot of my friends are coming here on Labor Day to do a craftsman's fair, 18th century craftsman's fair. These people, yes, they, they do wear the garb or the, the clothing of the period. They have researched their craft, whether it be building a rifle, making a powder horn, uh, sewing a pair of uh, breeches, whatever, uh, soap making, candle dipping, whatever the craft might be, they have studied it. You could take those people, again, this is separate from, the reenactors are a separate group. You could take these craftsmen, plop them down in the 1750s into uh, the, the, the town city of Williamsburg, Jamestown. They would fit right in. They know the lingo. They know... They are what they project themselves to be, uh, highly skilled people. So there's a definite distinction between the reenactors mm -hmm. and the true craftsmen. Uh, and hopefully this Labor Day, you're going to see a, quite a showing here. Um, so when I, so as I think about stuff like that, you know, so we, the new place that we got has a garden and the old, the old owner of the house who built the house, he's going to um, kind of show us how to till it. I've never really done gardening. We've had herbs and whatnot, but never proper garden. But I keep thinking like, I really want, once it's the first tilling, I really want to have like the hand push plow. And just by using old tools, whether that's like an old trap or a muzzle loading rifle, even if it's like a replica, um, it's just like, it's so fascinating exactly what you're saying about some of your friends at these craftspeople that, you know, you think of the past as this distant thing in a book or in a black and white picture or in an old painting or etching. But once you're surrounded by like your shop we're in right now, it's like, this is, it would have been just like this. Like, this is actually it. Like if you're in the right clothing, like it's just, this is actually it. This is what the point of view would have been like like it's like the real deal i just love it but um tell a little bit more about this festival that you're going to put on here on your property and um because i'm sure some people listening who are in virginia might want to come out to it what to say a little bit more well not just virginia uh we've got folks coming in from ohio folks coming in from i believe long island new york a very esteemed craftsman we're going to be turning our farm into an 18th century craftsman's fair. Uh, once you enter the property, even though the house that we live in is modern, it was made in 1887. Uh, other than that, there will be upwards of 15 very well-known, nationally known uh, craftspeople here. There'll be blacksmiths, there'll be riflesmiths, there'll be horners, which are people that work with uh, horn, powder horns or combs. Anything that we have today that's plastic in the day would have been made out of horn. Incredible. And these people are 
incredible what, what they can construct with horn. Uh, we've got candle dippers. We've got soap makers. We've got tailors. I have a 18th century surveyor coming in with period correct surveying apparatus. Uh, it'll be just a, a wide variety of crafts. It is not a gun show. Quite honestly, if I only have, I do have one gentleman coming in who is incredible. Uh, even if he couldn't make it, that's fine. The other crafts, if you have any interest at all in where your, I guess, where your forefathers came from, their lifestyle, it's going to be demonstrated here one way, shape, or form. The people are coming dressed appropriately. You said even the vending tents the will tents, be historically accurate. They will all be marquee-style tents and or other period-correct tradesmen's tents. There'll be none of these easy-up tents. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, when you get here— And you said the food will even be on point. I've got some uh, my Amish friends here in the county. They're going to be producing uh, nothing—again, nothing fancy. It'll be uh, cider— because we press a lot of apple cider here. It'll be ciders. It'll be uh, teas. It'll be soup, cornbread, just good, hearty food, typical of the era. I was doing a little research. Um, I made, uh, so I have a little squirrel hunting dog. So we've been trying to find lots of fun things to cook with, with squirrel. And so I finally, I don't know why it took me so long. Actually, I do. And I'll tell you, I finally made squirrel dumplings and you know that's there's chicken dumplings as well mm -hmm. i never made it because it looks it looks gross <laughs> but it is tr almost transcending so then i started researching well what's the because i know it's a historical dish but what's the history of of chicken and dumplings or whatever mm -hmm. meat you could do um and there's a a really good um youtube channel townsend's they do a lot of historical stuff, a lot of recipes. Absolutely. I know the company very well. Yes. So I love um, everything we're talking about, just the day-to-day -day life of people throughout the past. I am extremely fascinated on what was tasting like back. What would a king have been eating? What flavors did a king have access to? What flavors did a peasant have access to, et cetera, et cetera. Townsend's, they were talking about dumplings and like at its at its simplest form like people were making like it was you know dough cakes literally laborers and slaves were making dough cakes heated on the end of their shovel and i was like oh my so all of this history basically why i'm all this history stuff is so fascinating because it makes the mundane absolutely magical it it makes something so simple as a just dinner into an entire universe mm -hmm. of thought and of, uh, I mean, I can go on and on. Um, but I can't wait for your festival. We'll be there. Now, it doesn't seem like uh, you're too into the paranormal and whatnot, but do you ever, when you're doing these old time, okay, I interviewed a guy on the Chesapeake Bay. He's a living historian. He does a lot of pirate stuff. Um, it was an amazing conversation, super cool guy. He does a lot of the um, living history where they do, a, um, they, they, he doesn't say the word reenact, but they 
put on events, historical events and whatnot. He was doing a Civil War one. He said he woke up in the middle of the night surrounded by soldiers that were, and his living history character had a broken leg. He said the, he was surrounded by soldiers looking at him in confusion and they were on horses and no one at the event had a horse. And he kind of was like, what is going on? And he felt like the spirits that had of soldiers who had died there we're like interacting with their living history performance forever. And this like blew my mind. So I, it doesn't seem like you're too into that kind of like uh, paranormally type stuff, but do you ever like, is there ever a sense or a feeling when you're doing something in another time period that there's any kind of like engagement? I don't know how to, like, is there ever kind of like a weird feeling? We, we've had some, Again, you're actually correct. I don't necessarily believe in the that whole uh, Ghostbusters type thing, but uh, I'm looking out the front door of the Sugar House now. There's a farmhouse about a quarter mile up the mountain. Behind that house, there are Indian mounds. Uh, Smithsonian has been here prior to our arrival. We've been here 25 years. Prior to our arrival, uh, Miss Doreen that used to live up there, she had the Smithsonian come in. They did some borings of these mounds, and they are, in fact, burial mounds of Native Americans. Uh, my garden, which is behind me here, there are shards of Flint. We, we don't have Flint in Virginia. It's all been brought in from Ohio uh, with all the trade routes with the Native Americans. I found arrowheads in my garden and the shards are from you know, Native Americans chipping stone. Uh, so that, that, that's one thing that, you know, there's been people here for thousands of years. Uh, this is kind of, kind of an odd we are the first owners of this house that were not kin to the original owners. Uh, it went through three different families, I guess, all the same uh, blood strain, and we we're the first ones to come in here that weren't blood of these folks. We moved in and the house was rough, e extremely rough, dangerous, rough. But we lived in it, we restored it. Month or two or three after we moved in, one of the family, extended family members, super nice lady, lives on the other side of the mountain here. She either came here or we saw her downtown or somehow we ran into her. And she said, so uh, you bought Uncle Johnny and Aunt Peggy's home place. I said, Yes. And she says, so how is the house? So not wanting to offend, you know, I said, well, it, it needs some work, but we're plugging away. Not knowing it would take 15 years, but we're plugging away. And she looked and said, so how is the house? And she just asked me that, you know, 10 seconds earlier. So I looked at her and I said, well, it needs some work, but we can. I can fix pretty much anything. She looked at me. 
So, uh, have you noticed anything about the house? Well, it needs plumbing, it needs electrical, it needs carpentry, it needs masonry, it needs windows repaired, it needs new doors. She goes, have you noticed anything strange about the house? So I looked at her. I said, well, yes, but it's an old house. There's always going to be creaks and there's always weird things happening. She immediately, what happened? I said, well, it doesn't really make any sense, so, you know, I'm fixing it. She goes, no, what did you see? I said, well, I was wiring my daughter's room. And she said, and did you see something? I said, well, yes, but I'm still not sure what I saw. What did you see? Well, there was a, we had the power killed to the house. We had no, we killed the power. There was nothing hot in the house and I'm running new wire. I said, I saw a light go down the hallway. Was it upstairs? Yes. Did it go from the back of the house to the front of the house? Yes. It was like the size of a, like a soccer ball, just a ball of light. Yes, it's been seen before. So I looked at her and she said, have you noticed anything else? I said, well, what else should I be looking for? Well, you know, there's been stories about the house for years. I said, well, nobody told us before we moved in. No, no, we didn't want to tell you because then you might not buy the house. She says, what else have you heard? I said, well, the kitchen cabinets which are now what the cabinets are here behind me in the sugar house, we took them out. They were hung wrong, so when you open the door to the cabinet, the uppers, and you release it, it slams shut because they're pitched, you know, to swing shut. Hard. I mean, you have to hold the door open to get a dish out. And we came down one morning and a door was open, which it couldn't be because it, he goes, that's happened before. Is there anything else? I said, well, just my wife, Terry, she has a very sensitive nose. And I've smelled a couple, she'll smell it once or twice a year. I get it every so often. You'll walk into the parlor and you'll smell a cigarette burning. We don't smoke. So that's a very, uh, not acidic, but a very, very pungent odor. I mean, you smell a cigarette. If you're not a smoker, it kind of hits you. We smell it. Well, the previous owner was a heavy smoker. Now, the house has been all replastered. You know, there's no lingering odor. That's not the issue. No, this smells like somebody just lit up in front of you. Then we find out after months or a year or so later, we met up with one of their kinfolk from the county and said, you weren't home last weekend. I said, no, and we went to the Eastern Shore. We went somewhere with the, with the family. Well, we hope you don't mind, but, uh, you know, Cousin Jack passed away. I said, yes, you know, our condolences. Well, we had the ceremony at your pond. Okay. 
And we put his ashes at the pond. Oh. Okay. That's nice. Well, then another family member passed away. And they asked us, you know, would you mind if we... Sure, join Jack. We were gone for that weekend, and they had another ceremony at the pond. Then we find out that Uncle Johnny, who passed away in the early 60s, I believe, mid-60s, he passed away on the hill right behind the sugar house here, going out to the barn, coming back. He had a heart attack and died. So... None of that's paranormal. I don't, I don't know what you want to call it, but we've had one gentleman pass away here. We've had two ashes spread on the pond. We've had this light in the house, which that actually scared me because we had no power in the house, and yet I saw it. It was five feet away from me. It went right down the hallway. And the whole thing with the cabinet door swinging open when it can't. There's no possible way for it to do that so we've had some but nothing dangerous nothing malicious not so it's a friendly ghost if you want to call it that i love it and i love hearing these stories from people who are not super into it <laughs> because then it's all the more interesting and i mean that light i mean that would have blown me away so I've been turkey hunting a little bit in the mountains around our house. It's national forest. Two mornings in a row, I climbed straight up this mountain and in the holler, I was seeing this like little light. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm the only person. There's one road and there's no one there. It's not a headlamp. And I was like, maybe it's like a really early firefly, but it's kind of like, what in the hell? So I don't know. I, I love all this stuff. And the, I mean, how did you, as someone who doesn't really believe in this stuff or hadn't prior i mean the light ball must have freaked you out i must have freaked you out yeah mm -hmm. now i found out later if you believe in this stuff which i don't think i do it's called an orb mm -hmm. and it's supposed to be you know the the being wh whoever it was I don't know what it, but it's called an orb. Mm. Apparently I saw one and it was like. And that only happened one time? One time. Man. That, that's enough. One time is more than enough. Man, well, I told you on the <laughs> phone, the guy who I interviewed who is of Nanticoke ancestry talked about his relatives seeing light orbs on the marsh. Fascinating, fascinating. While out uh, duck hunting. Well, that's incredible. Thank you for telling the story. I love it. And your your old house is absolutely beautiful, how you guys have renovated and fixed it up. Um, two more things I think we could talk about before we wrap it up. Um, were you a sheriff here? I served as, uh, I was a deputy for I think three years and then served as an elected sheriff for four years. Um, could you talk a little bit about what that was like? I mean, so I interviewed, um, we were traveling through the Ozarks and I, interviewed a trapper in Missouri and it turned out he was a fur buyer and a sheriff. And I find it just kind of fascinating to be a rural um, police or law enforcement or mm -hmm. sheriff. I think it's very fascinating. I definitely am not interested with this podcast and talking about any kind of like current social issues or politics, not interested, but I do think it's fascinating. You hear um, some of the social issues, you hear people talking about how there's such an issue with um, in cities with police, not living in the community. 
Now, out in rural areas, like with this sheriff that I interviewed in the Ozarks, he knows everybody. Was that how it was for you? And it's kind of a more talking about the past. I mean, it's kind of like the old time way it would be. And it makes sense that you'd have a member of your community who's kind of enforcing law and order. So is there anything you have to say about your, your role as yep. deputy sheriff? As a, as an elected sheriff, you're required to live, be a resident of that county in order to run. Uh, you have to have the confidence of the people in order to get the correct number of votes. You're expected to know, uh, if not personally, at least, you know, at passing, oh, those are the new folks that moved in, you know, from, from Northern Virginia. They moved in last month. So you're expected to uh, stop on by, introduce yourself. So now you know, you know them. Uh, you're expected to know the extended families, which in Highland County can be rather daunting, uh, very large families. This one's a third cousin twice removed from this one. You're expected to know the family trees. Uh, if there's a problem, Frequently, instead of calling the office dispatch, which is 24 hours a day, they will frequently call you at your house. Uh, very, very frequently. Very typical phone call would be, you know, 1130, 12 o'clock at night. And Sheriff Tim, it's so-and-so. Yes, what can I do for you? Uh, you know, my son you know, was at a party. Uh, I think he's been drinking. And, you know, he's only 15. Would you please come talk to him? Well, can this wait till morning? Or, which is, that's very, that's a risky comment to make. Usually it's, give me a half hour, I'll stop by the farm. You see, you sit down at the kitchen table, and my big thing was, uh, if it was between midnight and later, you walk in the house, and could you put on a pot of coffee for me, please? If it's during the day, it's a glass of sweet tea like I have right here. And you sit down, you talk with the youngster, uh, you talk to the parents, get the issue resolved. Uh, no paperwork is done. But when it was a positive outcome, you just won over a youngster. Uh, you know, could, you, could I have done something legally? Sure what would that have accomplished sitting down for an hour or two chatting with them and at least three quarters of the time that person would thank me after the fact a week or two later he'd see me shopping out the co-op he'd see me at the dump walks right up to shakes my hand thanks me that's what it's all about uh, then you have the other issues that are more serious that you do have to treat at the level that it warrants. Uh, what I don't miss are the arrests. That's paperwork. You're, you're impacting a family's lifestyle, which could be just, fully justified. What I miss the most, those phone calls late at night, getting in the patrol truck, driving up to somebody's farm, walking in the house, asking for a cup of coffee, and chat with the folks 
getting a problem resolved without going to the courthouse. Let's just fix this between you and your neighbor having a little bit of a spat. Let me talk to you. I'll go talk to your neighbor. We'll both get together. We'll come to a resolution. That's what I miss. I mean, that was beautiful. I mean, it's like uh, communication. It's like a lot of things, a lot of our human systems perhaps can work so much better when they're on small scales like that. Yes. Beautiful. And um, what I was thinking when you were telling this is, it sounds like you haven't had very much sleep in your life. No. (laughs) Between having to cook cook your sugar water (laughs) or get up in the middle of the night to show up to someone's farm. Wow. Um, Wow. Very, very, very interesting. Um, I think to kind of close this thing up, maybe as our last chapter here, let's hear about, so powder horns is like one of your passions, making them? Like, what do you do? Okay, talk about the history of the little structure you got back there and what you're doing in it and how it's special and how no electricity. Let's hear a little. If if any of the viewers... Do you call them viewers or Listener, listeners? Yes, okay, yeah. okay. You folks aren't viewing. You're listening to me. Sorry. Uh, if any of the listeners ever saw the movie Summersby, back in the I think early '80s, uh, Civil War drama with Richard Gere and I can never think of her name, Jodie Foster. Okay, uh, I've never seen that one. It was shot uh, partly in Highland County, partly really? in uh, in Bath County. The big mansion down there, Warwickton, very lovely folks that own the place. When the set director came in to you know set the set, which is a bad way of putting it, but you know set everything up, he realized you know in scene fifty, Richard Gere needs to be seen walking past you know, slave cabins, and you don't have any. And they said, well. No, we don't. So they went to West Virginia and they bought three actual slave cabins from Union, West Virginia. Moved them on site, shot the film. Then they left, leaving the cabins and other props, some original, some reproduction. Well, the folks that own Warwickton or run Warwickton Mansion they're the ones that found this house for us when we were house hunting. They called one day and said, you know, we've got these three cabins. They're ours now, unfortunately. Uh, the roofs are caved in. The porches are gone. They're sinking into the ground, you know, but they are original 1830s log cabins. You need some log cabins. So I said, well, yes, I do. Went down, we bought all three of them at a very, very reasonable price, moved them. We moved them up here. I gave one to my neighbor. He helped me disassemble one of the cabins. So he has one up, the next farm up. I have this one and I have one more in pieces behind our orchard and we hope to start that this year. That's gonna become a, a Airbnb. This cabin that I have here now is a rough cabin. It is, you know, crude. It's one room, roughly 18 by 20 feet. No electricity, no plumbing. It's just a, a one-room log cabin. 
I build flintlock rifles. I build powder horns. Uh, I work on antique firearms, restoring them. Uh, I do some duck carving, uh, decoy carving. I've done that for almost 35 years. And I give classes out there on all the above. It, it's fun. Uh, it's always cluttered. There's always a dozen projects going on any given time. But I can walk out there and you know pick up a decoy and start whittling. Or I'll pick up a powder. This morning, as you pulled in the driveway, I was working on a powder horn. Mm. Uh, again, it's all period correct tools. I don't use Dremel tools or any modern electric. No, these are all in many cases, 18th century tools that I've reworked. Incredible. Now, this is a pinch of a tangent, but now when the long hunters were, you know, the long hunting era of Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, rifles, right, weren't, wasn't it like you would get, a, like each town would kind of have a rifle maker and then some would be notorious, or not, sorry, not notorious, some would be, um, famous as like, this is the person to go get your rifle from. It was very small scale, right? Like you have a, like a Smith, a gunsmith who's right. Mm -hmm. Back in that day, it was at a very local level where you get your rifles. Yes. How did that uh, work? And a lot of them were not rifles. They were, uh, they were smooth bore. Okay. What people mispronounce, they call it a fusil. It, it's fusi. It's a fusil. French term. Uh, I like, I love building my, I have one right now. It's on the bench. It's a, it's going to become a uh, an Irish gentleman's fusee. It's a smooth bore shotgun, basically. Uh, rifles were a premium. You paid a lot for a rifle. The long hunters were using rifles, right? Well, it depends. If the man didn't have his own, the company that he worked for, uh, the company that wanted to produce X number of uh, deer hides, for trade back to England, they might hire you. You're good in the woods, but you don't have a rifle. Well, then the company would either lend you or lease mm -hmm. to you. Mm -hmm. So you're working and some of your money was for the lease of that rifle. Mm. Uh, some of the hunting was done with smoothbores. Interesting. Uh, not quite as accurate at long range, but most deer, even today, most deer are shot between 25 and 35, 40 yards. Any one of my smooth bores out there, what I teach here, uh, we take headshots. Mm. There's no damage to the meat. Mm. The animal drops like a rock, mm. and we're doing it with a smooth bore flintlock. So cool. So people that say that flintlocks aren't accurate, you've got the wrong man behind the gun or the wrong gun in the... So for someone listening who doesn't know too much about guns, maybe they're more into herbalism or whatnot. So smooth bore, the bore is completely smooth. That's what like today's shotguns are still like. Yes. Rifled means it has a spiral inside of the barrel, which will help the bullet spin. The and projectile will spin like mm -hmm. a football, mm -hmm. a spiral, and it's much more accurate at longer range. And now when you say flintlock, what is the time period of flintlock? Is it 1700s to early 18? Roughly, we'll call it roughly 17... Eh, roughly 1670, well, that's kind of early, through 1820, 1830. And then it switched to percussion cap? Percussion, yeah. Okay, that's what I have, is a, is a reproduction percussion cap muzzleloader. I haven't hunted with it yet, but I've shot it. And the whole process, again, like what we're talking about with your old-time sugar cooking, the 
just the process is beautiful and fun. The process of pouring the powder, ramrodding, you know. Um, so I just um, met this wonderful guy over in my area who sold me a lawnmower and whatnot, but he's super into old time guns. And he was telling me he hasn't shot it yet, but I found this so fascinating that um, it's like, I'm going to have to try to simplify this for the listener. If they're not familiar with the guns, not that I'm all that familiar with it either, but so he has an old time smooth bore muzzle loader that for shot using as a shotgun. So today the shotgun cartridge is all contained. It's one piece. And inside of that cartridge is a wad, which is a piece of plastic today. Mm -hmm. And that kind of holds the shot, which is a bunch of pellets. Mm -hmm. So when you fire a shotgun for someone who doesn't know much about guns, you're firing a little cloud of pellets. So the wad is containing the, the pellets until it comes out of the end of the gun. He was saying, so today it's plastic. Back in maybe our parents or grandparents' era, it was like uh, cardboard or paper. Mm-hmm. He was saying the old time way is you use a piece of beehive. That's what I have in the shop. In incredible. Yep. So when you take your rod and you're pushing everything down the barrel, you're put you're you're putting down a piece of beehive that you mm-hmm. cut out. Incredible. Yep. Incredible. Have you done that? I have. That's what incredible. I. That's what I use. Yep. Incredible. And you have you hunted with these old guns? I shoot deer with them. I have my dad's muzzleloader. Uh, he was an antique arms dealer for many years before he passed on. And his rifle is out there now. And I take a deer every year with his flintlock. Just, you know, I guess in his memory or remembrance or, yeah. It's so awesome. It's so much cooler. And... um have you done the, have you hunted with those old guns, shotgun style, like for squirrel and turkey or anything? Mm-hmm. Really? Yep. They're very accurate. They're uh, oh, a shotgun. Squirrels, you're shooting a squirrel at 15 to mm. fifteen to 20 yards. Uh, these mu- The smoothbore muzzleloaders, it's great. The only issue is after you squeeze off the round, there's a big puff of smoke. You have to know where the squirrel landed. Oh, uh, okay. Sometimes you have to kind of walk your way through the cloud of smoke to find the squirrel. But no, it, it's fun. It's a heck of a lot of fun. And again, it just kind of fits in with everything we're talking about by feeling as you're living the past by using those old tools. So cool. Um, let's see, any final things? So the powder horn, you're, you're, um, what's so interesting to you about making those? I started, I made powder horns when I was 10. Really? 10 or 11 years old. I made my first one. And then every couple of years, excuse me, every couple of years I'd make one. Uh, But now I'm actually, I've got enough horns out there now. I've got 30 or 40 horns in the making. Uh I specialize or I, I try to focus on the mid 18th century. Uh, they definitely changed about 1790 on the style changed. I like the early style horns. They're not heavily adorned with a lot of fancy scroll work and all. Uh, I do a little bit. Now, are they edging. from bulls? They're from cows. Okay. Uh, bull horns are tend to be, they, they're too thick to. Uh, too bulky to mm. it's just not you have to get a cow horn and the early the early style powder horns would have a double curve to them which you don't see anymore mm. 
So that S curve hmm. is what you'll, and I've got some out there now. The one I was scraping this morning when you pulled in, that'll make a nice Virginia horn from about 1750 to 1770. And again, just to be clear for anyone who doesn't know, doesn't really use guns or anything. So you, that the powder horn is what you're carrying your black powder. In. Yes. And that's what you're pouring down the barrel when you're doing the whole process. Yep. Um, they're, they're very personalized. Interesting. Uh, if you had the skill, you would, you know, make your own powder horn because you probably had cattle. If not, you would go to a horner and you would say, I would like to have a horn made. My name is, you know, Tim Duff. I would like to have my name on the horn. Uh, they you, would engrave it? Yes. Wow. Uh, or you would get a plain horn and you'd scratch your own name and you can tell the ones that weren't highly skilled, which they're very, they're beautiful. They're so crude. They're beautiful. Almost more so than the mm. heavily adorned artistic ones from a professional horner. Sometimes the crude ones, they just have that look. Uh, so it, a horner was an 18th century oh, craft. Oh my gosh. It was a job. Oh my gosh. I've never uh, even heard that. Yeah. Oh, geez. Uh, so you'd have a guy's shop who is purely making powder horns. What is a horner uh, doing? He would be a horner. But what does that mean? One thing that he would do, he would make powder horns or they would take the, the horn, the cow horn. They would steam it, slice it, flatten it, press it. So now you have a sheet of flat horn. It would then be scraped to whatever thickness you needed it. If your wife needed a comb. This is what you're talking about. It was what plastic, when plastic re, um, took over. Uh, if you needed spoons, a soup spoon. Incredible. They were actually steamed and then put into a spoon press, pressed, take it out, it holds, retains the shape of the spoon. Anything you could think of. Uh, Keep going. Like what? Okay. I have one here. It's somewhere in the sugar house, but I don't see it right here, but it's here. A wooden frame with a very, very, very thin sheet of horn, uh, roughly five by seven inches, flattened horn and a wooden picture frame. That was the child's writing pad. No way. For school. No way. What would you write uh, on it with? Some kind of a chalk? chalk. If you needed a, uh, oh my gosh, you needed a, uh, you had a little bit of money or you wanted to buy your wife something a little bit nice for, for Christmas. She did some trading and she got some, a spice. Something that was imp we import we've been importing in this country for hundreds of years. So don't think that the backwards people didn't have some of the niceties. They did. So she went. She took some of her sugar that she had made the previous maple season. She traded it because a man came through a few months ago with some spices that came off of a ship in tide water. She wanted, we'll say, cinnamon. She got some cinnamon. Well, now the husband, he could contact a horner, and I have one in the house I can show you. It's a horn container with a wooden walnut top to it. Mm. She could put her spices in that and seal it to keep it fresh. Incredible. So a little so, spice container. Yep. So anything Incredible. you can think of, Wow. they could do. 
Wow. Do they have a horning shop like in Williamsburg or any of these? The, uh, there is a the Honorable Company of Horners, HCH. Interesting. Which I, which I belong to. Uh, and they produce, in order to go from journeyman, you know, to work your way up to the master, you can't just produce powder horns. Mm. You need to be able to show the craft. Man, that's cool. And all of its wide variety of implements. Uh, you know, in order to be judged by your fellow guildsmen, you're going to present, you know, a snuff box mm. with a custom, with a fitted ivory inlaid lid. And all. Mm. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. Now, were people using hunting horns too? They were uh, basically as a bugle, uh, and your dogs would know your your tone as you put I'd it like out. to do that for my squirrel dog because right now I've uh, got like the GPS thing. I mean, it's a, an incredible tool, especially for a dog with a high prey drive and high energy. It's an incredible tool to have the electronic collar, but it's, but you know, it's, it's the opposite of everything we've been talking about today. And I'd like to be in the mountains just going, you know, I'd like to get one of those hunting horns. I know in Appalachia, the old time bear hunters would yes. have, would have them for their dogs yep. to call their dogs back. But um, just a quick tangent as we end, I've been trying to get in. So, you know, I find all this history incredibly fascinating. I'm so enamored by people who know their like direct connection to their ancestry, especially, you know, someone who's a Native American can say I'm of this tribe. So as Europeans, you know, we're so mixed up that it's hard to be like, hey, who was I a thousand years ago? Mm -hmm. What? who are my clan? Who are my tribe? You know, so I've been fascinated in learning about that. A lot of my family still lives in Belgium. My mom is from Belgium. So I guess she's a first, first generation immigrant. So, um, my dad is, lives in England. So my family's still in Europe, but, uh, kind of through ancestry and my Belgian an ancestors, I've been kind of like looking at like the Gauls who were, who were inland Celts and they were all tribes that were annihilated by Caesar basically. But um, they had these war horns, and you might know it, and like Vikings kind of had mm -hmm. similar, but these enormous war horns, like, <laughs> so that sound just like gives me chills. So I like kind of want to be in the mountains with my little squirrel dog and have my little horn and just like <laughs> let that, because when you're in the Appalachian Mountains, unlike other mountains I've been in, they echo. Yes, they do. And it's haunting. The dog's, a dog's bark is so loud in the mountains and it just echoes through there. So to like blast a horn back there would be like a chilling ancient sound. Okay. <laughs> is there anything we should talk about as we, as we're done here? No. Uh, if you're from anywhere on the East coast, uh, please come by and visit us during, visit the County, uh, during the Maple Festival. We have a sign in book and a uh, guest book. Every year, we get people from Canada to Florida to mm. Kentucky. Mm. It is the, uh, the, the first outdoor festival of the year mm. for the entire East Coast. Uh, COVID aside, you've been cooped up all winter. You want to get out and do something. Folks come to Highland County. It's incredible. And as soon as they come one time, they're hooked. Oh, yeah. They tell their friends. Their friends tell their friends. Please come by and visit us. Uh, it's a very unique county. 
There's more sheep and cattle than people. Uh, it's all, I'm right here, I'm looking at one mountain that's 3,900 feet behind me, or in front of me here. Behind me, it's about 3,500 feet. Uh, it's just a beautiful rolling county uh, with the peaks running you know, north and south, or east and west also, I guess. Uh, just stop on by. A lot of really friendly people live oh, here. Yeah. Okay, that, that because you just said it, I'm going to close with this. And maybe you'll have some thoughts on it, since you technically are not from this area. I've intellectually understood the term salt of the earth. People say that about people. They're salt of the earth. I've intellectually understood what that means. Having moved to Pocahontas County, meeting my neighbors, meeting the guy who sold me the mower, meeting the guy who built the house, they are salt of the earth. Yep. And now I feel what that term means. Do you feel the same way here? Yes. And what is it? What do you feel that that means? Now, I don't want to over uh, you know, overplay this because every county in Virginia, every state in the country, you've got, uh, I want to say good and bad people, but you've got all mixture of, of people in any given locality. We have a lot of very good people in this county. Uh, there's one or two or three that stand out that, oh boy, you know, here he comes. But you're on, you know him and you, know, you just kind of ignore whatever. If you are coming to Highland County, and let's say you get lost. All you have to do is stop by the first house you come to that has a light on, walk up and say, hi, I'm so-and-so from wherever. I'm trying to find Tim and Terry Duff. They have Fairlawn Farm. I'm lost. They will tell you exactly how to get here. If you break down, you have a flat tire, you're coming in from the Stanton area, we'll say you're on 250, and you have a flat tire, and you begin to panic. Well, there's no need to panic. Try to pull your car off to the side of the road. The first person that comes by, uh, unless they're a snowshoer, a, a tourist going to Snowshoe Resort, they don't know the area. If they're from the county, they're going to stop. They're going to help you change your tire, or if it's a woman, you know, they will call their husband. Next thing you know, a tractor shows up, and they will change the tire for you, or they'll take you to Monterey. They'll take you down to the Exxon, and one of the guys there will plug the tire, and then he'll get back in his truck. He'll drive you back to your vehicle. Uh, it's just a, a friendly so bunch. When we move, so there's no reception here. There's no reception where I live. There's no reception <laughs> anywhere around. A lot of it supposedly has to do with this observation yeah. center, this the Green Bank Observatory, which is a satellite dish that's like one of their things is listening for extraterrestrial life. Very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll do a podcast about it later. But living in an area with zero cell phone reception, I mean, there is in town, but it's like literally in the town. So the second you're out of this tiny town, there's nothing. It's a non-issue. Like, my, my problem was like, what if me or what if Vivian, my girlfriend, breaks down? It's a non-issue. And you get used to not having cell phone reception in, in one day. It's a non-issue. If something happens, you get out of your car and you go walk up to a house and knock on it and say, that's it. That's it.